Can I include your, your funny dog voice on the podcast? I don't have to attach it to your of name. Of course. <laughs> it's not funny. It's just how it is. I should introduce you and say you can. that you are. I'm not ashamed of my dog voice, Annie. You are one of my best friends, Melanie Friedson, a human owner. How do you refer to yourself when it comes to Herschel? I'm his mom. Okay. Mom to Herschel Stanley. <laughs> 12 year old Cavapoo. Beach Poo. A Beach Poo of Washington, D.C. Yeah. Anyway, so it's the last day of the year, and I'm putting up the last podcast episode of the year. I wanted to say to listeners that if they have enjoyed this podcast this year, that maybe they could um, leave a review on iTunes or shop at storeforthedogs.com to support us. But I thought. It would be more fun if it was in your dog voice than in my normal human voice. Oh, okay. So can you just so you say those say things? That? Yeah. <laughs> if you like this podcast, please support us. Leave a good review on iTunes. Or you can shop for us at storeforthedogs.com. This is Herschel's Stanley Friedson's mom. <laughs> Jen Nastansky. Hello. Hello. Thank you for being on School for the Dogs podcast, and thank you for being part of School for the Dogs since, what, has it been two months now? Something like that. Something like that. (laughs) Time is a little nebulous right now. Remind me of your official title, because I'm bad with titles. I'm a behavior therapy trainer. And uh, you've been doing private lessons, you've been doing... Uh, day school, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Have you been doing both Misfits Day School and regular day school? Uh, yeah, I haven't started puppy day school yet, but yep, I've been doing Misfits and day school. To su- can you explain what those two things are? Sure. To people who do not know our nomenclature. Sure. So yeah, mm-hmm. and it's been it's been fun to learn too. <laughs> um, so day school is a drop off program, and the dogs come in the morning for a set amount of time for a three hour period. And we alternate um, sort of rest period, relaxation. We do some crate training. We only take between three and six dogs at a time. They have to generally like other dogs and be able to tolerate being in a crate or being in a pen. And we do sort of some controlled playtime. We try to pair the dogs by size or play style. We take lots of break periods to make sure the play is cooperative and safe. And then we get the dogs out one-on-one and just do some obedience training. If they're ready, we do loose leash walking around the neighborhood. We have quite a few neighbors who are uh, friendly shopkeepers and they invite us in. They do practice greetings with us. Um, They're sort of always happy to help and visit with the dogs. Misfits is a program later in the day. It's a little bit more of a a one-on-one program. These are dogs that can't tolerate being alone. or, or watching while a trainer works with another dog, uh, dogs that can't get along with other dogs, that have leash reactivity, that just need a little bit more intense focus. Um, yesterday in Misfits, for example, I had a little cavalier who is uh, pretty low confidence in the city. He's new to the city and he's been very fearful of dogs. So for his first Misfit class, we um, 
had him paired with a fake dog. We had a stuffed dog in a pen as sort of the distraction. And then this week in Misfits, I had my real dog, uh, Pop-Tart, Poppy. And she was sort of a helper dog, also behind a pen. And he did, he's not quite ready to play with her, but he's starting to warm up, uh, getting more confident. It's a safe way for him to interact without being overwhelmed. Um, and he's starting to make real progress. So he's more a misfit dog that needs a little bit more uh, training and one-on-one attention than day school. We should specify that we hold, we hold these at our studio, not in the owner's home. But you're also doing private training and, and day training. I do. Uh, So I'm currently doing, uh, I have a couple of regular day training clients. I take the dogs uh, out from the, I go and pick the dogs up from the owner's home and we go out for either an hour. Um, I even have one dog that's up to three hour sessions. He has some kind of long socialization sessions. He's had some field trips with me. I've taken him in my car with my dog and gone to the park and walked around on leash together, helped build his confidence around other dogs. So that's, that's more that is sort of training one-on-one from the, the owner's home. And then you're also teaching classes, right? Yep. I have started uh, with Calm Canine, which is sort of a general obedience, but also a lot about relaxation and, and settling behaviors, especially in the city and around distractions. And I am starting to teach prep school, which is a basic obedience class, also with sort of some mild distraction work. I feel like I'm so unused to hearing the word obedience. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm, I, I probably have some terms that are a little old school. I, I definitely was a, I'm a reformed dog snob. I used to show dogs in obedience. So the word oh. obedience comes out of my mouth a lot. <laughs> well, I think obedience uh, has come to mean manners in the world of dogs, regardless of whether or not it is about obeying. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's more cooperative now than it's well, we, we aim to make it more cooperative, mm-hmm. but there's still I mean, I grew up I, calling dog owners masters, which seems crazy to me a little bit now, but did not. Well, and I know I still automatically say owner, which is pretty yeah. outdated. I think I think the move has been more to the word guardian. Yeah. Well, you know, we like on, on social media and whatever, we mm-hmm. usually say like the dog's human, mm-hmm. which I mean, I still say owner, too. In the same way, I guess I still sometimes say obedience just to, like, speak a language that people understand. Exactly. It's kind of a shorthand, a common shorthand. And legally, you are the dog's owner. Right. Legally, dogs are property, so it's kind of like an accurate term. It is. That's that's sort of the unfortunate part of it, that the dogs have fewer rights. We are their owners. They are property. Yeah. I mean... It's there's I mean, I think there's actually like a you could say there's like a master and slave thing going on. <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is Stockholm syndrome. Like, <laughs> Well, but it's a step up from it's a step up from how most um, domesticated animals live in this world, sure. which is like not, um, you know. Well, and it's taking, wild. Taking, not it's not taking naps on West Elm couches. Sure. <laughs> well, it's wild to me how the the expectations for dogs have changed over the years Mm. dogs in the home dogs behaviors how we approach those behaviors um there's there's been so many shifts kind of back and forth and it's i think um at least in new york city in particular i feel like i'm seeing owners wanting a more positive slant and a kinder more cooperative kind of training versus the, the old um rigid obedience standards that i feel like there used to be when i started um with Scorch, my my 
AKC novice A obedience dog and rally A obedience dog. I'd com- I toyed a little bit with competing with my mixed breed, but he couldn't compete in um, AKC. So with my dog Scorch, he's a uh, 14 now, but when he was about a year old, we were starting to to look into competing and taking more advanced classes. And there was a big divide happening. And it was very hard to find trainers past the basic level who weren't using punitive methods. And part of why we didn't continue, you know, we, we titled up to uh, a particular level of obedience. Um, it, oh my goodness. It was so, it was so long ago. Um, so we were, he, he was a, he was a young man when we were training and it, it, this was in Florida as well. This was not in New York. Uh, he's the love of my life, first of all. He's my heart dog. He is a, a Border Collie Samoyed cross, as it turns out. Great dog to work with, but he would get very frustrated with me. You know, he was pretty, well, he, he still is. He's a very high drive dog and he's pretty fast and intense and he tended to forge ahead. And I was unwilling to give him leash pops. I just, I was uncomfortable. I, I tried it. I didn't like it. I had to do it with other types of career training. Let's back up a little bit. How did you, so uh, how did you first start working with dogs uh, in any capacity? Oh my. Um, I was 17 years old and I was kind of dog obsessed. We had a, a Karen Terrier that I was taking to obedience classes and uh she wasn't that into it, um, but I, I think I was hooked. And I was uh, volunteering in an animal shelter and working at PetSmart as a teenager. And some of the trainers kind of took me under their wing. And I, that's when I started. I got introduced to the world of um, competitive obedience and rally. I was interested in agility as well, but um, money and time and being very young, I had to pick a sport and I picked obedience because that's where all, all my friends were going. And they all had fancy purebreds, and I had this shelter mutt. Um, but we still, you know, I enjoyed it. My shelter mutt had some health problems, so um, he unfortunately couldn't compete very long. And um, that's when I stumbled upon this, this oops litter of border collies and the best dog I've ever had. Can you explain what obedience is, the way you're referring uh, sure. to it? Sure. Um, when I say that too, when I, I tell people, oh yeah, he's got obedience titles. They're like, oh, well, what does he know? Does he know shake? Oh, no, like <laughs> he kind of does, but it's, he's not into that. Um, yeah. People I think don't realize that there's still competitive dog sports like this. Um, it, obviously the agility is what people are, are generally familiar with as a competitive sport where the dogs are going over the jumps and the ramps. And then there's uh, confirmation showing, which is like Westminster, where the dogs are, are competing to a standard, uh, a breed standard. In obedience, there are several levels and, and some of the requirements have changed over the years. But generally, the dog is expected to work with the handler on leash and off um, in an obedience ring with a judge present. You are not allowed to... You're only allowed to speak or give commands at particular times. Um, you're only allowed to praise your dog briefly between exercises. They have to work basically for what and what are but what are the exercises? So the exercises, the judge lines up the the dog and the owner, and they call out a healing pattern. So they'll tell the the dog and handler to forward, and the handler will tell their dog to heal. And the dog is expected to walk along at the left side. Um, 
generally looking up at the handler is sort of the the fashion nowadays. When it originally started, I think the dogs could look ahead. And the judge calls forward, left turn, halt. And when the judge calls halt, you have to come to a stop. And without giving any commands, your dog is supposed to sit down next to you. And when the judge calls forward again, you start off, you can say heel, and the dog is expected to return to a, a, pace, a brisk pace next to you. They call changes of pace. They call fast and slow. Um, and then you repeat the, the healing exercise off leash. You also do a figure eight pre-COVID. Uh, the figure eight would be a, a he- the same healing position, the dog at the left side. The judge calls forward and there would be two stewards, two volunteers standing still in the ring and you would do a figure eight around them. I think co- post-COVID, I believe they're using cones and they're not going back to humans, which is, that's it, a pre- I'm appreciative of that. <laughs> um, it just sort of makes things a little easier to arrange for obedience trials and distractions. Um, but so then after that, there's a recall. The, the dog is left on a sit-stay. The handler goes across the ring that waits for the judge's, judge's signal. You call the dog to come. The dog sits in front of you and then is called to heal. All of this is on the judge's command. So it's exercises like that. In more advanced levels, there's also some elements of jumping, um, retrieves, retrieves over a jump. The hardest thing for us, and part of the reason that I stopped advancing, um, was the stays. Uh, Scorch was able to do it, but the in the first level of obedience, uh, the companion dog title, it's a one-minute sit-stay and a three-minute down-stay in a group with the handlers across the ring. And the dogs... Wait, I, just while we're talking, I'd like to like look at... What do I even look up on obedience dog training? You know, I, I get like terrible oh okay so i i would look up like what do i akc competitive obedience maybe i would try that see and this is this is sort of the problem the word obedience i think the connotations when the sport started it was very old school lots of shepherds and and big dogs and army trainers and and it's it's changed but the culture kind of hasn't caught up all the way yet if that makes sense i can send you uh some videos of sports working I do have some YouTube videos of him. So this is kind of, this was your first introduction then to dog Yes. Training. I mean, yeah, this was really, at the time I was doing some pet training. Um, I also did um, some competitive How classes. were you, were you doing pet training? You were doing pet training as? Uh, so a PetSmart, I ended up actually going through yeah. their apprentice program. God, this, yeah, this was like 19 years ago now. Um, wow. What was that like? Was that? like more old school. No, actually it was, it was pretty, it was pretty good actually at the time. It was, it was pretty, um, clicker training, very reward heavy. You were not allowed to do corrections. If I remember correctly, it it, it was actually pretty pleasant. Um, I ended up with a couple of regional trainers and I shadowed their classes. You know, I, I do feel like the big box stores do have some good trainers that, you know, they sort of get a reputation for you. You don't know what you're going to (laughs) get. But it's, I, I worked with some great trainers there. I really met some very talented people and they, and they pulled me into other areas of dog training too. It, there, was a bit, there was a big manual. There was a kind of a, a, a guidebook and curriculum. There might've been a test, I can't remember. Um, and there was some shadowing as well as assisting at the time. I, again, I'm not sure if it's still like that now. At the time, the, the, 
training director in, in the area, in the Florida area, was was pretty on her game. She she had a good team under her. So I, I got lucky to start with people that were involved in other areas of dog training as well. So you sent me this video of you doing some obedience work that I'm looking at now, and I wanted to try and explain it. Uh, to those who are listening, um, so you're in like, you're in like a pen and you're walking very briskly and that there's a judge walking around. You're alone. He's on your left side looking up at you. The judge is following yes. you kind of, and is he giving you commands? Yes. So he's saying the only What's things up? he's saying are forward, um, a few times, and this is very minor stuff, so Scorch is right next to me and very attentive. This level, we're completely off-leash, so you'll see the stewards come in and set up for the figure eight. That was his, that, he loved that part. He likes showing off. We should do classes based on Oh, I would on love to. This curriculum. was so much fun. So people could get their titles, yeah. right? And I believe, especially with COVID, they started doing a lot more virtually. It seems like it's a lot about walking really super nicely. It's, it is about precision. So you, in the first part he now now you're throwing a dumbbell oh yes this was his favorite he he was always very vocal for this part um so it it is about precision they do take off points for how straight he sits how straight he is in the heel position so initially because he was so excited to be in the ring he got some points off for being a little bit wide so his meaning his rear end stuck out a little bit and now that he's a little more focused and a little more engaged in what he's doing, he's sort of tightened up his position. So then we, you start with 200 points and they kind of mark you off for every little error. And uh, I also threw the dumbbell and it landed outside of the ring. So the judge had to stop all the proceedings and give me back the dumbbell. And poor Scorch was nearly vibrating with excitement and desperation to get to the dumbbell. There's as much human element as there is dog element. So it really is cooperative. Did you like have like, did you have like dumbbell throwing sessions to make sure you yes, could throw it right? Yes, I was terrible. And I was, I was so <laughs> nervous in the ring. It got even worse when I was oh, in the no. ring. And this was for the title. So you need to pass. Basically, you, you start with 200 points. You need to get a passing score and pass each element of the exercises. Um and three times to get your title. So this was for our title and we did get it. Um, did you use a clicker? Yes, we did use a clicker for some of that. Who wouldn't want a dog to walk nicely right next to them, looking up adoringly? I mean, you're using, when you're teaching, you know, random client now to walk their dog well on a leash on the streets of New York City, that's part of what you're teaching. Yes, I, I absolutely. I mean, I tell people when I'm like, oh, just noodle and do a figure eight uh, around distractions. I mean, this is literally, that's how I taught it. Everybody asks me about like, when do you train your dog? And it's, it's on walks, especially in the city. Um, or, you know, if I bring my dog to work with me, it's, it's all training. It's all, I'll work on heel position and I'll work on figure eights and it doesn't have to be perfect when we're out and about, but it's the same skills. They're just a little bit looser out and about, but it's it's the same thing. The other type of obedience we titled in too was um, rally, which is a little bit uh, of a lighter version of obedience. What I know about rally is it looks a lot like what you were just doing. It's just you're following signs that are written down on the ground. Yes. So much it, fun. It's a little 
more exciting and a probably a better starter for, for some people in dogs than competitive obedience. You can speak to your dog a little bit more in the ring. There's a lot more um, interesting movements. It can be a lot less repetitive. I, I used to teach rally classes just for fun because it's, it's, again, it's just something different to do with your dogs and something to mix up the walk sometimes. You were doing this um, stuff in Florida. Uh, and then at some point you ended up in New York. Uh, in the rescue world, yes. connect, connect the dots. Well, there's, there's sort of one more big step. I mean, I did pet training for a few years in Florida, uh, and I, I also was a, a vet tech, on-the-job trained vet tech uh, for two years, which was amazing, and I learned a lot, um, but I also learned that I preferred behavior. <laughs> um, so uh, then I, I applied for a job as an apprentice guide dog trainer, at a Southeastern Guide Dogs. Um, and that was sort of it. They had their own apprenticeship program and I learned how to train guide dogs. I, I applied and just, uh, I ended up, you know, I ended up, I guess, passing <laughs> the, the tests and I started out training the adult dogs. Um, so the dogs in the program get, uh, they're, they're bred on campus and the dogs are raised by puppy raisers for a year to a year and a half. And then the dogs, after that, they get, they get some basic obedience while they're with puppy raisers. And then they come to the campus and get trained daily. They live on campus and they get trained daily by the guide dog trainers for a few months. We go on all kinds of field trips, um, teach them all kinds of commands around stopping at curbs, finding obstacles, and then they get matched with clients, with, with students, uh, visually impaired students. So the organization has a fantastic set of trainers, um, but the guide dog training world and the service dog training world at the time um, was pretty reluctant to add food into their training or a lot of a lot of reinforcers. Um, it was uh, mostly praise based training. Um, we had some, you know, the kind of the old school training collars. It was it, that was tough for me, uh, you know, after I'd been sort of struggling with this divide that I was seeing in pet training, I was kind of thrown back into it again um, in, in guide dog training. And uh, my boss, uh, the director of training, Rick, we, we, he's a great trainer. And even though we came from different backgrounds and we had different training styles, I, I, I'd like to think there was a lot of mutual respect between us. He's, he was a very, very good trainer, very unemotional, very fair um, so even though we trained differently, you know, I could see how the dogs responded so well to him. And we talked a lot about our training philosophies. And I had a particular dog that I, I enjoyed working with named Freckles. And Freckles was a little golden retriever, Labrador retriever cross, but she had a white blaze up her nose with Freckles on it, hence the name. Um, and she was really struggling with the training. She would, couldn't quite get matched with anybody. She had like lackluster in her harness and Rick sat me down and said, all right, you can, uh, you can try clicker training with freckles. And if you can make this dog a guide dog, then we will try clicker training. Because one of the other schools was starting to investigate it. We weren't sure if we wanted to. So um, I started working freckles with food and she got matched in uh, my next class and she retired as a guide dog. She just passed, um, I believe, last year. Um, but she was a working guide dog and she was fabulous at it. She went to a college with a young girl who has now graduated, is on her third guide dog. 
Um, and we did end up doing more positive training after that. And, um, I actually switched over to the puppy raising program and worked with the puppy raisers all over the Southeast. They have 250 of them and Scorch, my dog in the videos that I showed you, he was my right hand man. He traveled with me everywhere, was a demo dog. Sometimes he was rude. I definitely had to learn some lessons about controlling a big, goofy male dog who might be pushy with some of the other dogs because <laughs> Scorch had some strong opinions about some of the intact males in the program. But um, Oh, you mean he wasn't a perfect animal? Oh, imagine that. He taught me a lot, boy. <laughs> um, he was a little different than the Labradors. <laughs> That's an expectation of dog training yes. dogs that they should be. Perfect. I know. I was in. I was say in the neighborhood. I'm always trying to go incognito. I don't want my neighbors to know what I do. <laughs> they see the reality sometimes when I'm tired and don't feel like training. His leash manners. But his right, leash manners right, were right. terrible, by the way. His whole life, this dog who heals beautifully in all these videos couldn't loose mm-hmm. leash, get him to loose leash walk to save my life. Now, finally, at the age of like 12, he started getting there, and 14, like we got it. So, I mean, it's, it's not as, it's not easy even for trainers. So you were going around the country talking to puppy. Yeah. So I was, I was sort of the, the rep for the school and uh, obviously the the local groups in Florida, I could see more often, but they were groups of volunteers. They would have like one volunteer group leader called an area coordinator. Um, So they would hold regular meetings and basically I would go out to a meeting. And if they wanted me to teach, I would, teach like a new skill. Um, I started doing like training videos and, and examples of new protocols. Cause again, we were kind of doing a switch. So a lot of the longtime razors weren't familiar with, we didn't do clickers cause that was just, that was just one too many things. Um, but they weren't that familiar with marker words or using food in training. Um, so we sort of, I flipped some things on its head a little bit, but I had some, again, I had such good willing trainers and our our puppy raisers were so fantastic. And some of those dogs were so strong and powerful. And I don't know how those people (laughs) handled it. They they would hand the dog to me and be like, wow, that's amazing. I'm like, yeah, because I don't live with this dog. (laughs) Like this dog is a lot because some of the, some of those labs have rough adolescent periods, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it was, I mean, it was so incredible. And I, I actually, that was a really good way to learn about genetics too, because I got to work with large populations of related dogs whose backgrounds we knew. Um, they had a very closely mm-hmm. sort of monitored breeding program and, and pedigrees, even though the dogs weren't course, registered. Right. Um, and we did bring dogs in from outside populations and things like resource guarding, we would just see it right down a line of dogs, usually golden retrievers. Wow. So <laughs> yeah, it, it was fascinating. And it was, it would be in varying degrees in a litter, but you would see it. Um, it, it was just, it was amazing. Uh, but, but, all that being said, and I loved my job, I did not like Florida. I, I had, um, I, I am a New Yorker. I'm, I'm from New York and I hate the heat. I hate the humidity. It just, it just wasn't for me. Um, so I, I actually was, I stayed in Florida longer than I wanted to uh, due to family obligations. And as soon as I could, I applied for a job at the ASPCA they, I didn't hear back. Um, so I, in yes, in New York city. So, uh, I got on a plane and I showed up at the door and said, Hey, did you guys check out my resume? And at first they just kind of sent me on my way. Um, and a friend of mine talked me into going back. I, I really wanted to work for them. I, I really was hoping it would be a match. And, um, 
the, the they called the HR HR people pulled up my resume and I got an interview and I ended up getting the job. Um, I ended up moving up a few months later, started working at, I really missed shelter work. You know, I had started volunteering at a shelter when I was 17 and starting my dog career. And that was really, I missed it. I was passionate about it. I, I, I liked guide dog training, but I really like working with the dogs that need help. That's really more my area of interest, I think. Um, so I started working at, uh, care, which is a part of the ASPCA and it is for dogs who are being held as evidence in cruelty investigations. Um, so that's, it. that was a very, very different set of dogs. Um, and I, I mean, I probably learned more from those dogs than any book could have ever taught me. Those dogs were incredible and it, it just... I, I mean, I, I couldn't even sum up it, how incredible it was to work with these dogs, some of which were, you know, absolutely, I couldn't believe they were alive. And some of them would trust us right off the bat, even though, even what people had done to them. Um, and some dogs would come in and be absolutely fearful, but we needed to find a way to safely examine them. And they weren't, they didn't want food or they were guarding food or they were trying to bite everybody. You know, I had to kind of learn some different approaches and really had to learn to read sort of micro expressions, <laughs> predict how they were feeling. And it was, it was incredible to see what responding to a dog and listening to them and letting you, letting them know that you hear what they're saying, how fast that built trust versus food, toys, anything else. Just like if a dog told me to back off and we'd say, okay, okay, that's fine. Just that little moment, you would see the little, little glimmer, little glimmer of hope. And oh, those dogs were amazing. Um, I fostered a few. I, I ended up adopting a dog, uh, not from the ASPCA, but I did adopt a dog from a cruelty case in Massachusetts. So I also got a COVID puppy. <laughs> those dogs being held as evidence, they uh, can't go anywhere, Correct, right? until the case is resolved. Um, and, you know, it, that's that, that's tough. It, it, there's a very dark emotional side to it that, I, I mean, I was expecting, but there you just can't prepare for it. And, and sometimes, you know, the animals are held in limbo. And, you know, a big part of my job was determining safety for adoption. And I do feel very strongly that shelters should be doing the best they can to place animals that are safe for the general population. Um, so sometimes that meant making decisions on dogs you know bad dogs or aggressive dogs they're not bad or aggressive all the time or they might they might be considered geniuses in other situations we we were just talking about the forty thousand dollar guard dog yes. training program. <laughs> yes <laughs> I, that's why i was saying i've got some dogs i would do it for free you can't control the aggression but it's there <laughs> right, we, there was a website that we went we all the trainers were looking at on our chat that was like pretty punitive <laughs> methods of training like give us your dog and forty thousand dollars and we will make him into a guard dog and the different things that he would do like room checks and car searches and oh it was and we were all saying like there are a lot of good guard dogs out there available for <laughs> yeah free. they'll just they'll take my guard dog please <laughs> we did actually end up you know it was hard to find um in the shelter world it can be hard to find uh you know alternative placement we did have one dog um my coworker Maria ended up fostering a dog from one of our cases that was a pretty, you know, we, we were worried about him. He was a, a pit bull cross and um, 
fairly big, powerful dog, and he was just mouthing everybody. Didn't appear aggressive, but obviously the staff was you know, concerned about handling him. But we started working him and we're like, man, that's just, this is a really, really cool dog. <laughs> like, the, like this is, you know, sometimes the dogs that trainers like are the dogs that annoy everybody else. Because we like dogs that are smart and like thinking 45 steps ahead and are really obnoxious. Um, so that was, that was this dog. And Maria, uh, one of our trainers, ended up fostering him. And she does search and rescue uh, with w- one of her personal dogs and has a, a, a pretty good working dog background. So she did some assessments and videoed him and he ended up going out. I, I, he's doing some kind of search. He's, I believe he's a working canine um, doing so nothing aggressive, uh, but he is doing some kind of motivated searching. And so it's, that was, that was one of the best endings we got to see was like a dog really doing what he wanted to do and, and just what he was meant to do apparently. (laughs) You know, so this brings us back to what we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, which is how important it is to, I mean, obviously, (laughs) I mean, probably being held in this limbo for some of these dogs was like a better situation than whatever they had been living in. Yes. But, um, but more than that, how, um, uh, how important it is to have, I mean, part of being part of being, I think, a dog lover is wanting to see dogs in their element as much as possible. Well, and, and you know, this dog was not a bad be... dog. Like, like this dog right. was not no, a bad course. dog. But in a pet home, he would have been a nightmare. Right, right. He would have been a nightmare. But we were talking about it in terms of a, a, a about clients who go to extraordinary lengths to make it possible to not have to rehome a dog as if rehoming a dog is uh is a failure when actually in many situations rehoming the dog seems like a a would be the the most the the biggest success for the dog right like if you know you think about if somebody has a uh, i don't know like a like a scottish terrier and they're having a barking problem and the dog is wanting to chase squirrels. And, you know, a Scottish Terrier might be a small dog, but they can be a very powerful dog. And if they get frustrated, they might nip you and bite first, ask questions later. I had a Karen Terrier, so no judgment. You know, I, I like Terriers. I think they're, I think that's just part of what you have to like about them, that they're, they teeth first sometimes and think later, um, but that they're very forward-minded and they're high drive. And if you try to make that dog live in a box and never have an outlet. If you try to make that dog just a pet, I'm not saying that that high drive Scottish Terrier can't be a pet, but that he really needs a chance to engage in what he's meant to do. Like if he doesn't get out and get a chance to dig and and run around and and ferret things out in a safe enclosed area where he he can't get away. As dog trainers in New York city, uh, I think sometimes we see people with dogs that are uh, that need like physically need more space or need more time. And it's or... not a judgment if you if that is not what you signed up for and that may be the dog you get when when maybe that wasn't, you know, that wasn't the relationship you wanted with a dog. Maybe you didn't want to be out hunting rats every night. <laughs> You know, I'm a crazy terrier person. I would love to do that with my dog. <laughs> but you you have to want it. And if you, if you want a dog that's going to lounge on the couch, then maybe, you know, the Shih Tzu or the Pug is the better option. 
Well, I know there, there's so much out there, sort of, there's so much snobbery in the world of purebred, uh, the purebred dog world. I think about like the, the designer dogs, the doodles, mm-hmm. where I think like, you know, for how many centuries have we bred dogs who can thrive in the environment that we're asking mm-hmm. them to live in? Like, whether that's, um, you know, hunting <laughs> or chasing or pointing or, you know, or, or mm-hmm. like, like looking cute and being quiet on the, you know, princess's lap. <laughs> right, right. And it's, I think it's okay to want dog, to, yeah. yeah, it's okay to want to breed dogs for pets. Like doodles yeah. obviously fill a niche that yeah. people were looking to fill because yeah. there are so many of them. And of course there's, um, you know, well, well-bred doodles and not well-bred yep. doodles, but um, there are plenty of people out there who, who turn up their nose. Well, it's not really a breed da, da, da. like fine. Oh, whatever. and I was absolutely one of them. Again, I, as I said in the beginning, I am a reformed dog snob. And so I, <laughs> hi, my name is Jen. I used to be a dog snob. Um, I absolutely was on the train. All doodles are crazy. Um, you know, it's breeding disaster and, you know, actually shelter work, cruelty work changed me because we had a dog come. Well, we had a couple of doodles come through, but there was one in particular that came through that was just, just the absolute cutest thing. He was a big doodle. He was so sad. He was emaciated to within an inch of his life. And he was so sweet and so affectionate. And, you know, I, that was sort of like a, it sounds stupid and simple unless you've been in this dog world. But at that moment, I realized that doodles are just dogs. (laughs) Like how, like, how could I judge this dog in front of me? It's not his fault. He's a, you know, he's a doodle. And for whatever reason, I, I, it's been drilled into me that that was unacceptable. And I just, well, and there's a reason people, people like these relatively small non-shedding dogs who um, are often very smart, you know, that have some, some attributes of whatever other breed, like, and it's not a, it's not a crime to want something that looks like a teddy bear, (laughs) right and Um, I think the unfortunate thing is it's the stock you start with Mm -hmm. if these breeders aren't starting with good quality doodles or poodles or goldens and aren't doing health checks before they breed the dogs and and verifiable health checks um you know taking structure and temperament into account it's unfortunate that there are doodle breeders that are very clearly taking advantage of the dog shortage that many cities seem to have right now, including ours. But going back to what we were talking about, about, you know, clients with the dog was just like the wrong dog for their household. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a weird um, part of a dog trainer's job, as I see it, Yes, yes, is sometimes to have to point that out and say, like, nothing against you as a dog owner, but this is just not a good fit. I've had people cry with relief when I've told them that because they, they're afraid to tell people that this might not be a match and that maybe they and the dog's quality of life would be better if the dog was somewhere else. And pe- people mm-hmm. are afraid to say that because they, they'll get judged. And again, I probably at there may have been a time where I would have been one of them and I just don't, there was no point to it. There's no purpose. Like rehoming a dog is best for people and dogs. There's no reason to keep suffering if, if it's not a match, but it is a hard thing to hear sometimes, I think as an owner too, it's a hard point to know when to bring that up. If you notice it as a dog trainer, if you think it might not be a match, but you're not sure if the owner's on board. It's so hard. 
I feel like um, really, like it really is a lot of therapy that <laughs> like private dogs. We do so training. much. We do so much therapy, dogs and people. It's just, I, I, I think that, you know, I think that walks with a dog should be enjoyable for both the, the dog and the owner, for example. And, you know, it, but at the same time, I think the, the expectations have to be realistic for what the dog is going to be able to adapt to. Now you're doing private training and it's like going into people's homes. And, and sometimes it's a very stressful, emotional situation that we're walking into. It, it really is. And, you know, there's attachment and guilt and, you know, a lot of times, too, I think in New York City, we have the extra neighbor shaming component. Um, whether it's, you know, barking has to be stopped because of people in the building complaining to management or, you know, just neighbors screaming and shouting in fear when they see the dogs. So sometimes it's asking the dogs and people to cohabitate in New York City is really, there's an extra layer of tough that, that dogs just don't necessarily encounter in other places. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where like in other places, like you might your your next door neighbor might be a thousand miles away, right? That's yeah. true. The good thing true. about I've New never York. thought about that. That like just you have yeah. more yeah. eyeballs and ears on your dog because we all live in tight quarters and people have these high expectations. Yeah, in the, in the suburbs, like you, it was very much like a cry it out was normal, and the dogs would just get over it after a while because nobody was around to hear it because nobody lived close enough. It's, it's, it's a very different lifestyle. I do think in New York, um, uh, guardians, owners tend to address things sooner because with trainers, because the dog can't just be like put in a backyard and put away. They sort of have to deal with things as they crop up sometimes. That's such a good point. Yeah. It's just been an interesting transition because especially having traded the suburbs before, it's, it's sort of a different, it's the same problems, but it's, the dogs do get out for leash walks, so the training opportunities come a lot more regularly. They can encounter people and dogs in crowds. So that can be a little ambient. It's so true. It's instead of like oh, that one-on-one, oh, my God, there's a person coming from 2,000 feet away, and I can see them walking the whole time, and now I'm going to bark. Like that's, that's sort yeah. of the suburb experience. You know, maybe that's one reason why um, dog sports are not as popular in my experience in urban environments, I mean, one, obviously space, but also like we're, <laughs> you, you could work with your dog without having to go to an yeah. arena to do it. Yes. Um, maybe that's what like people in the, the, uh, the, the, the burbs who are going to do those things. Yeah. They have like, to like need, make their need own a project. distractions. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> like, we, we live around the distractions. We don't need to make up anything. <laughs> I do. I, well, I do try to find, I mean, I like it that New York has so many green spaces, even little green spaces. Obviously, I'm not letting the dogs, you know, climb into things, but there's so many, so many places that I can stop and let the dogs sniff and decompress. Like we try to have mini sniffaris on a lot of my training sessions, you know, finding little oh, tree sniffari. boxes. Oh, sniffari. That's and... such a good word. I love that. Oh, yeah. I, I forget who coined it. I think I saw it in the whole dog journal, but I, you know, decompression <laughs> walks just sound so formal. Sniffari. It made me giggle. I feel like a five-year-old saying it, but I love it. <laughs> and it's just I let the dog lead and sniff for as long as they want, and they can weave and bob. And it's just the studies are showing that sniffing actually lowers a dog's heart rate. And I certainly want that <laughs> from my dogs in New York City. Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, my sniffaris. Um, sniffari. <laughs> 
Um, anything we haven't touched on? That oh my we, gosh, we, we touched should... on so much. I know, we've touched <laughs> on so much. Um, well, I'm thrilled that you are part of the School for the Dogs team. I'm thrilled to be here. It's sort I of think was... it's, uh, it's really interesting and exciting to hear your path. It's fun. I, you know, and I like, I just like, yeah, I'm just, I enjoy working with dogs. A lot of my, so many of my clients are so into the training or, you know, into seeing what the dogs are yeah. doing. It's just nice. It's nice to work with happy people and happy dogs <laughs> after, after shelter work. It's kind of nice. Well, I'm glad we, I'm glad so we're, I'm glad that we're able to provide you with that. <laughs> and you'll have to meet Poppy. I've started bringing <laughs> our we, poppies. We'll have to yeah. have our, our poppies meet. You know, I've started bringing yeah. my Poppy to work, my dog Poppy. And I understand you have a dog named Poppy. So Yours is a we'll Pop-Tart, right? Together. Official, her official name. Yes, she's Pop-Tart. <laughs> her nickname of her name. Yes. Well, well yeah, when we register her, it's going to be... Um... Ours is Popsicle. <laughs> yeah. Popsicle! Oh, well, she started her. out as Poppy, but... She has become popsicle. <laughs> I did see, I saw a video of her playing with Anna's dog, Ginger, and just bobbing all over Ginger's head and Ginger just she, putting up with it she, and yeah. lying down and just yeah. going, all right. Poppy looks fun. Like a puppy. She's like a little over a year. Um, oh, Poppy. My oh. Poppy as well. Um, She's like a year and a half. So. And my, my biggest complaint, not really my, I mean, I don't have any complaints about Poppy. I love her to death. But the, the thing that I'm having the most trouble with is, is and, and it's not a training challenge. It's just about time. Is like finding the time. Specifically, mm-hmm. I want to work with her and her nails because she has really bad nails. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's on my list too. Same. And oh, I my need, goodness. We have parallel really, poppies yeah, right like now. I need, I need yeah. to like, I just feel like I have so... I know we have to do the little bit every day. Here's the dog trainer dilemma. Like the dog trainer's yeah. dog isn't getting trained because I'm doing five minutes every day with client dogs and writing about it, talking about it. I don't want to get home and do five minutes of deconditioning with my own dog. And I just got to, I just got to do it. I know. Well, maybe we need I to tried, like, you know, I'm so tempted to, to just sit on her and do it, but I, I know I need to be kind and do it slowly. Maybe we she need, had maybe we need to have like, we need to have like accountability meetings on it. <laughs> or make a date. I like it. Maybe we could make like it like it. a we date. Do scratch board sessions. Yes. I'm serious. Like maybe, I, I'm, I like it. I'm, I, I am I too. I need to set like date, a date, I think, in order to make this happen. And if I just have no one to be accountable to, I probably won't do it. Not out of lack of interest. Just All right. Of, now we're going to do it. It's like on, on – yeah. A reminder. It's just, yeah, ADD. I can't focus on I – have, I have all these other things to focus on. I can't remember to do that. <laughs> I'm lucky I yeah. feed and dress yeah. myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> We, we need dog trainers to work with us. That's part of also what dog training is. It's like keeping people accountable, you know? That's true. People are surprised when I tell them I take classes, that I've, I've, I've never stopped taking classes. I take classes online. I've taken classes with, with Denise Fenzi online for, for years. And because I, I, I don't know, I don't know everything about dog training. I don't know how to oh, train shoot. everything. You don't, I certainly don't know how to decondition you don't, you don't know. Nails. You don't know everything? I mean, yeah, are you going to? I'm out of here. <laughs> we wish you well on Why your endeavors. Why hire you? <laughs> sorry sorry i i may have misrepped i i don't actually know everything jen thanks for talking i'm sorry this went went on longer than thanks I for thought having it would, me there's so much to talk no about. no that's okay i hope yeah. i hope we got some good content i'm happy to get on any soapboxes anytime you want <laughs>
oh, this was great. This was fun. Yeah, really, really interesting. Um, all right. Well, I will talk to you soon and see you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Annie. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And special thanks to Bill and Lizzie of Toast Garden for the amazing theme song. You can find Toast Garden at youtube.com slash toastgarden. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping at storefortheDogs.com, and you can learn more about us at schoolforthedogs.com. You can also connect with other listeners by downloading our brand new app. Just visit schoolforthedogs.com slash community.